as we're continuing on the new year, um, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Philippians. So if you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, and um, to some of you this might be a little bit unfair, but we, we began at Faith Bible working through the book of Philippians, and I, I think I want to continue to do that. Um, some of the, the older messages will be online at some point, um, and, and you can go back and reference those. But we're going to look at, at Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to kind of move forward through the rest of the book. I contemplated starting a new book and, and, and working in, through some, some different things, but I, I just think there's a wealth of wonderful truth and grace and joy in this book that needs to be communicated. And I think where we're at as a church, it just becomes so apparent to me that, man, this is, this is really good stuff. And, and some of my favorite verses are, are in Philippians, and because I'm the pastor, no. Uh, it's a wonderful book. So Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at this idea of Christ as uh, really our only confidence. Talk about confidence. And Paul's going to, going to do some wonderful things in this passage, and, and you'll understand why. Not just for us as a church, but us as believers. Um, to understand and to know. And this idea of confidence uh, is a good thing, right? If you're confident in the right things, it's a good thing. If you're confident in the, in the, in the wrong things, right, that can be very bad. There was a story of a of a, a man and a wife who were driving along. And usually when you have a man and a wife in a car together, you know where this is going to head. And, and so they're driving and they come to a sign that says, road closed. All right, turn around. So the man thinks to himself, oh, I've got this. I'm, I'm a really good navigator, right? I have no problems. I don't need no directions. I don't even need a road, right? That's probably what he's thinking. And so the wife is saying, I don't think this is a good idea. The sign says we should turn around. No. Husband says, we're going to move forward. So with confidence, right, he goes forward. About an hour into the drive, he's, he's feeling really confident. He's navigated a few obstacles. And this isn't bad at all. I think we've got this. Begins to kind of boast in his head. And the further they go, pretty soon some of those words wake them, make themselves out of his mouth. And he's thinking, you know, aren't you so glad, right? Aren't you so glad you're married to me, right? We can go forward and navigate this. We can, we can go on. And just as he's saying this, of course, he comes to a washout in the road where it's impossible to go forward. And after a moment of awkward silence in the car, right, without his wife saying, I told you so, right? She didn't have to. He turns the car around. They drive all the way back to that sign. And as they approach that sign from the other direction this time, it says, welcome back. Right? Well, sometimes being confident in the, in the wrong things can, can get at us, right? And here Paul is going to talk about a, a passage of Scripture where he's going to talk about his, 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 really his resume, who he was, right? And how he, at one point in his life, put confidence in that. And then there's this wonderful change in his life. And he says, you know what, that's not where our confidence should be placed. It should be in Christ. And that's what he shares with us this morning. So you have your Bibles. At chapter 3, we're going to read verses 4 through 11. And Paul says this, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
but, right, wonderful contrast here, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of, Je of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let me offer a brief prayer this morning. Lord, once again, we are grateful for this time you've given. And Lord, your word that is truth. I pray that you would communicate that to us now. Allow me to get out of the way and not to be a distraction. That our eyes and our focus and our minds and be upon you. Instruct us now and be glorified, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of a background to, to kind of get into this place. Um, Paul has written this letter, and we realize that he, he really loves the Philippians. He loves them. This is a letter, uh, plagued if that's the right word, but it's full of joy. It's full of encouragement. It's full of, of genuineness. And one of my favorite verses, um, after Paul talks about his introduction, he says, I am a, I am a, a slave, a bondservant. Right, which necessitates the idea of a master. And, and Paul's saying right out of the gates, I have a master. He is Christ. I am his servant. And then he encourages us with this wonderful verse in verse 6 of chapter 1, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work, he will complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. Right? So he, I think that's a wonderful verse that every believer should memorize. Memorize that one. Because there's moments in our life where he feels like he's a million miles away, and we have to understand and realize that if you're on this planet, if you're breathing this morning, and you know him as Lord and Savior, well, he is at work in your life. He's not done with you yet. He hasn't called us home. He hasn't come and got us. So that's a great encouragement. Paul goes on from there, and he really encourages by saying, hey, guys, what has worked out for me, my chains for the gospel, has actually been a wonderful thing. I don't know about you, but... I don't know if you'd equate that to wonderful, but Paul says, hey, my chains and being in prison has been a very good thing. It's worked out for the gospel. I've seen the furtherance of the gospel. I've had an, a place where I can communicate at a greater level the truths of the gospel. And he gives us some most um, wonderful verses, probably you've heard many times before. In verse 21 of chapter 1, for to me to live, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul realizes Providentially in his life, he's in chains. This is probably going to end in the, his execution. And he's saying, look, hey, the gospel needs to go forward. I realize that in this life, it is Christ. And if the Lord calls me home, then it is by all means far better. He encouraged him, encouraged that the gospel would go forward, right? That he would be um, communicated, that they would have faith, that they would come together in unity. It becomes a very central theme to the book of Philippians, that as a church, you would unify under Christ. We could ask the rhetorical question, how important is unity in the church? 
immensely important because we are a testimony to the community. If we cannot individually and corporately surrender and yield to Christ and his word, what kind of testimony do we have? And Paul says, look, it's vitally important. It's in chapter 2 that you consider others better than yourself, that this mind would be in you. We'd yield to one another. And then he goes into the most powerful illustration of all time. Chapter 2, he talks of Jesus. Consider Jesus. Let the mind, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus left his glorious side. Right? He became a servant. He operated in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. He becomes a servant. He fulfills God's will, the will of the Father. He goes to the cross. He dies for us. And because of that, the Lord gives him a name which is above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Heaven and earth, every tongue confess. Right? That is a great foundation. And Paul says, here's your illustration. Here's your example. Go do it. Right? Amen. He goes on from there and he says, work out your salvation. This, because of Jesus, you need to work this out, your sanctification, and develop. Then he talks about Timothy and Ephroditus, or examples who have loved them. So he's communicated some wonderful things, and he gets into chapter 3 and he says, all this is for Christ, right? But beware, he gives us a warning, right? Faith community, beware, there are, there are evil people out there who desire to take you away from the faith. And then he comes into the passage this morning where he's really supporting this idea that some people are going to come in and say, well, you have to earn it. You can earn your way into salvation, into right standing, or you can be born into it. And so my first point this morning is kind of giving you the, the fast track up into this point of, of Philippians. But what I'm going to call this morning, verses 4 through 6, is the condition. We have a condition. Now, we might not be uh, um, quick to acknowledge that, but as we go through this, you might be seeing this, maybe some of these traits or elements in your life, at least one point or another. He says in verse 4 through 6, he says, Though I, I also have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul's going to say here right out of the gate, if you're trying to earn right standing with the Lord or salvation with the Lord, you're not going to make it. And he's going to use his own life as an example. He's going to take his life and stack it up against Jesus. And we'll see very quickly how, how short Paul himself falls. Now, if anyone of Scripture had, I would think, achieved anything close to this height of self-righteousness, it would be Paul. Paul says, look, there's some guys out there who want to take confidence in their flesh. If there are those out there who are like this, I would have more so. I have more of a right in which to claim confidence in the flesh. Paul would, rec I would think, ranks among some of the greatest men who have t attempted, right, to live this type of life. He did, I would think, all he could to secure God's approval and ultimately right standing with him. And Paul did it by human effort. So many people today, I think, 
um, maybe at one point in their lives, or maybe in a whole, maybe you know of some, have at least uh, considered or maybe a thought of a type of, of earning, if you will, or some type of work necessary to obtain salvation. Somehow that idea, right, has, has worked its way into our thinking that we can be right with God if I can, I'm just good enough, right? If I say the right things and go on from there. Paul, he dispels ultimately any hope that we might have in trusting in those things. So this morning, my first point under this is the condition, what I'm calling the condition, is that there might be some who think we're born right, right? And Paul uses three things here. He's talking about your birthright. He says, you circumcised on the eighth day. Paul was saying that he had the right birth, right? If you have reason to both, check this out. I had the correct birth. I was born to a Jewish family. I always followed the law, right? This was a sign that a person believed in God's promises. On the eighth day, specifically, this was done correctly. Believed, right? Particularly, uh, the Jews believed in the promises of the covenant of God. And he's saying, this is it. I have the sign seal. I was born into the right religion. He goes on and says, of the stock of Israel. He has the right national heritage. He's claiming that. Look at this, guys. Look where I was born. Of the stock of Israel. A very special relationship with God. We are set apart. When a Jew wishes to stress his special relationship to God, right, he calls himself an Israelite. Paul's saying, I was the stock, right? The stock of Israel. The eighth day I was circumcised. He goes on and says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. It's important for Paul to point this out. Not just any tribe, this tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, the one that stayed loyal when the others were disloyal. We stayed true. We were courageous. We had courageous acts throughout Israel's history. Paul is saying that he was at the highest nobility, the most noble, the most respected person of Israel. This is what he's saying. I was, in, in effect, born correctly. Now, we want to take that over and we say, well, none of us are born right that way this morning. So what about today? Paul is saying that goodness and righteousness are not found in a birthright nor in religious rituals or ceremonies. Yet, how many people think they're acceptable to God because they have godly parents? I have a godly spouse. I'll be okay. I get in on the spouse program. I have godly children. I know a godly friend. I surround myself with good people. Maybe, maybe we might say, well, I, you know, I, I've kept religious rituals and ceremonies. I, I show up on Easter and Christmas. And even we can go beyond that and say, well, I, I go at least once a month. I go to church once I'm good. Right? How us put our, our hope in that? Today, how many people might be thinking, I've been born to a Christian nation. I've been surrounded by Christian principles that must carry some merit or weight with God. How many people feel that how many people, excuse me, feel that people of so-called Christian nation are more acceptable to God than some heathen or some idol-worshiping tribe in the depths of a jungle? Well, clearly, Lord, I'm better than them. I'm okay. I'll be acceptable. How many people feel they are more acceptable to God because they belong to an upper class? Or a more elite church? 
a more dynamic church, a more active ministry. Somewhere along the lines, we hold on to some of these thoughts and we think, you know what, I'll be okay. At the end of the day, I'll be okay. Paul is saying if, if what you have currently you're holding on to doesn't stack anything to what uh, I currently have, or speaking of Paul himself, saying there's no hope for you. Paul says in Romans 3.23, right, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. This is the one thing, the lowest common denominator each and every one of us share in is that we all have sinned. So now we're kind of lost. There's no way we can earn it back. And Paul's saying, look, I was trying to do that. You can't do it. I was born right. I love this verse in, in John chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, verses 12 through 13, where John says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe. Very important word for John's gospel, believe, mean trusting, putting our faith in Christ in his name. He goes on in verse 13, he says, Who were born not. So how do we become children of God? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You can't do it. You can't earn it. You can't be born into the right, right family. It doesn't get you there. So Paul is saying your birthright, right, thinking that you were born right, and all that you think it might entails, right, does not earn right standing. It can't get you salvation. It can't get you right with God. You see, this isn't enough for Paul. Paul just doesn't stop here in his resume. So he acknowledges who he is. I was born this way. I was a Hebrew of Hebrew. I was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He goes on. So you're not Hebrew of Hebrews. That's the next one. But he goes on from there, and he broadens his scope. And this is what I'm going to call it to those people who think we can earn it, right, or earn right. He begins by saying he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Guys, just what? Well, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. A believing Jew refused to give up his Jewish language and customs. So what is happening, there's this dispersion. The Jews are being scattered, and the common language of the day is Greek. And Paul's saying, look, I'm holding on to this very thing. I'm not going to waver in it. I'm steadfast in it. I am going to keep to the rituals. I'm going to keep to the customs. I'm not going to waver in my dedication and my devotion. He was untinged by other philosophies. He was a purist. That's what he's saying. Never wavered. The world can change. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He goes on and expands and says, I was a Pharisee concerning the law, right? Paul is claiming that he had the right religion. The Pharisees itself, the name means separated ones. Paul devoted himself to a very strict religion that separated itself. He says he, for zeal, he persecuted the church. Paul had such zeal for his religion that he sought out to, to extinguish anyone who would set up a contradiction to his way, to the way, right, of the Pharisees. In Acts 22, verses 4 through 5, he says this of himself, Paul going, I and I persecuted this way unto death. He's speaking of these Christians this way. Binding and delivering into prison both men and women. As also the high priest doth bear me witness in all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. So he's pretty zealous. Now realize that in this, it's not like the, the Pharisees commissioned Paul to go do this. Paul, on his own effort, maintaining all the ceremonies and all the rituals and all these types of things, went and sought the letters to go extinguish these guys who were, who were part of the way. 
Yeah, that's zeal, right? You go, yep, that's pretty zealous for this. He's going to extinguish it. He's pretty hardcore. He goes on, he uses, concerning the righteousness of the law, he uses the word blameless. He's saying, guys, I was blameless. If anyone was pure, if anyone was born right, anyone had the right religion, it was me. He claimed to keep the whole law completely. It doesn't mean Paul was sinless. He's, when he committed a sin, he fulfilled exactly what the law required, right down to the T. He obeyed all the commandments, the ceremonies, the rituals, just like Scripture said. Anyone had a right to boast? It's Paul. I was born right. I had the right achievements, right? This is his resume. So what about today? You know, Paul is saying that goodness and righteousness are not found in religion or commitments in religion or zeal in religion, not even being a follower of true religion. Yet how many people feel the very opposite? I've done this. I've done this. Right? Fill in the blank. I've done enough. We might think that, that we are acceptable to God because, well, I've, I've been good. I've done some good. I've been faithful in being good. I'm consistently good depending on how you define that word, right? And we think we've been faithful in my studying of my religion. I study my Bible and the great doctrines of the faith. Those are good. They don't save you. Maybe we've been faithful about talking about Jesus or sharing spiritual things. We know how to use the religious terms and language, right? I know the inside language. I know the talk. Those might be good, right? You know, in themselves, those are good things for a Christian to develop, to learn, to study, especially theology. I'd always encourage you in that. They don't make you right with God. Paul is saying that peace with God is not found here. That's his point. You can't find it by being born right. You can't find it by earning right. That's not how you guys do it. Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. They realize Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking to all these Jews, right? And then at that time, at that moment, these guys looked to the Pharisees and the scribes, and like, these are the elite. They looked at them as, 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 man, that's where we need to be. I need to become like them. And they were feeling hopeless. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, look, if your righteousness doesn't exceed or excel these Pharisees and Sadducees, you're not going to make it. Right? And so their response will be what? Well, then I'm not going to make it. And Jesus would say, you're right. You're not. Someone else has to do it for you. You can't earn it. He's laying the foundation. Romans 3.20, which says, Therefore, Paul once again, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The only way we get right with God, right, is Christ. So here we have, here's the condition. Paul's saying, look, here's the condition. If this morning you're trying to think you're born into it or you can earn it, you're not. Look at me. I tried it and it didn't work, right? That's what Paul is telling us. So there's our condition. So you and I, if we've been in that boat, if we're working along those lines, we have a problem. I've been trusting this. I'm thinking it's going to make me right with God. What do I do now? Well, Paul moves on from there in what I'm calling the correction. Here's the correction, verses 7 and 8. 
but. Anytime you see that, there's a contrast in Scripture. Paul is now going to contrast what he talked about his resume. And he goes into this in verse 7. But what things were gain? To me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Here is the correction, right? A compare and contrast. This is the profit and loss statement for Paul. He's going to take a moment in this passage, and he is assessing what he has once at one point in his time placed his hope in. He's going, wow, this isn't it. This won't do it. He's communicating to others. This isn't going to do it. If you're thinking someone are going to come in and saying you can earn it, they're, they're lying to you, right? Because I'm the one. If anyone has a right to boast, it's me. Check me out. Here's my resume. And he says, but here's the correction. If you've been placing your hope in works, that you've been born right, you need to have a correction, so let's look at this. Here's this contrast, a compare and contrast. The first one, trust in works is loss, right? So we're feeling If you're trusting in works, it is loss. Three times he describes this, and each one kind of progressively gets more vivid. First, Paul is saying that he concluded, right? After assessing my life, my resume, I have concluded that what I thought were actual gains were in reality losses, he goes on from there developing his thought. It's almost like he's, he's contemplating and reassessing as he's writing this out and thinking about it, going, man, I, used to, I thought it was gains, now it's a loss. But then he attaches he, the word count right, to the object of loss. I, I'm assessing it. I count them. I've looked at them. I've looked at what I've, all, I've put my trust in. I'm saying it is all loss. It's a proper assessment of a good decision is what he's saying. There's no hope there. Then he goes on, he expresses this a little bit more firmly using the word rubbish. All that I have done attained is rubbish, refuse, something we would throw to the dogs. Paul's saying my stature, my status, my birthright, everything I've done to earn this is literally something I would feed to the dogs. It is nothing. And we see this intensity. So he kind of goes through it. It's almost like he begins with, it's a loss. No, I count it loss. No, it is actually garbage. He expands on it. He's stressing the idea that this morning, if there are those who are counting on their works, Paul is saying there is absolutely no hope. You cannot stand before a holy and just God and think you can earn it. He has the credentials. I'm sure there's many Jewish observers who would say, man, Paul, come on. That's pretty good stuff. You did all right, right? Paul would say no. He's placed all of that in the loss column. Why? Because nothing belonged in the profit column except Jesus, Christ alone. His relationship with Christ is far superior to his Jewish background. Far superior. And the point is because, right? Because his background did not bring him to Christ. Very important point. His background did not bring him to Christ. His earning it, his achievements, his birthright, none of it brought him to Christ. So that's the first side where he talks about loss. Trusting in works is loss. And then from there he goes on, talks about the other side of this compare and contrast, where trust in Christ is gain. 
And again, three times he expresses this idea of gain in Christ. He says, was lost for Christ, right? It's the idea of exchange. He goes on from there and he says, what was the sake of the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord? So the loss is for Christ. Christ is the gain. He goes on from there, the excellence of the knowledge of understanding who Jesus is and what he has done is very important. This statement is, is about the, the knowledge of Jesus, which excelled anything that Paul had done. Paul's understanding, the stoutness of his theological mind, and all that he has done for the New Testament, he's saying all of this doesn't compare to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Therefore, knowing Christ, believing Christ, trusting Christ was far better than his former life. Third, as he expands this a little bit more, he says, I have counted all things as lost that I may gain Christ. And here's the exchange. This is the correction. All this that I have placed hope in is actually no hope. But now that it is Christ, I put all my hope in him. He becomes everything. It was not possible for Paul to hold on to his former values and still have Jesus. And the point is, the things of this world, all human accomplishments... For us, must be viewed as rubbish. Thrown to the dogs, if you will, in comparison to gaining Christ. Our focus needs to change completely if we're trying to earn it. Now, hear what I'm not saying this morning, right? Are good works good? Yes, the Lord has set things before us to do. But those things do not earn salvation. We can't earn our way there. There was a father who was helping his son clean out his garage. As he came to the house, he noticed that his son was throwing a bunch of things in the trash cans, and he saw all these trophies that his son had won over the years in different sports events. He thought about all the blood, sweat, and tears that had gone into earning those trophies. All the countless times he woke his son early in the morning and took him to practice and all the away games and all the extra things that comes from being a parent with a child who's in sports, right? And as he's sitting there looking at it, he's reminded of a children's poem by Shel Silverstein called Hector the Collector. So it describes the things that Hector collected over the years. And he loved them more. He says, he loved them more than shining diamonds, loved them more than glistening gold. Then Hector called to all his friends, come and share my treasure trunk and all the people came and looked and called it junk. See, what we do in our lives, because we're humans, because we have this, maybe this desire, I'm speaking in generalities, this idea of earning it, of winning this trophy. But look, Lord, look what I've done here. But look, Lord, look what I've done here. Did you not see me go do this here? And we're talking in, in terms of salvation, the we need to take those trophies and say, well, you know what? They're junk. That's what Paul is saying. All of this belongs in the trash can in regards to salvation. And once we get that worked out, once we understand that, and we get that correction going, then we begin to move forward. Then we begin to really take the gospel forward, right? Because our life has changed and we understand what it means. 
So the correction that Paul is talking about is not based in, in ignorance or some type of blind hope, but it has a tremendous foundation. That foundation has tremendous assurance. This correction is placed in Christ alone. This leads me to my last point. We can have complete confidence. Simply the confidence is what I'm going to call this. Verses 9 through 11, he says, And being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul simply explains, brothers and sisters, there is a better way. Here is the right way. Here is a way that gives you confidence. Don't trust in your works. Make the correction and trust this. Trust Christ. It doesn't depend on you and I. It depends on the objective work of Christ alone on the cross. It is obtained by faith. And here, through these three points this morning, they're really key doctrines. Paul unfolds some wonderful theology for us. The first point is, I'm just calling it justification. This is a past tense moment in Paul's life. He says in verse 9, I'm being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. Right? It's not some mystical power, something floating around. It's not the force. Right? It's the object of our faith. It is Christ. And that's what I place my trust and my hope in. And this is what Paul is saying when you do this. You can have the same confidence. Why was he so single-minded? Why was this a devotion? We see this throughout Paul's letters, and especially here, this one verse, he's saying, it is justification by faith alone and nothing else. Because this is the only source of righteousness. It is God's. This is the, right, the way to right relationship with God. Righteousness comes as a gift from God. It is obtained by faith in Christ. There are no human works or merits or ceremonies or anything we do to earn that. Here is Paul's doctrine of salvation and philosophy of life, right here. In regards to eternal salvation, humans deserve nothing, can achieve nothing, and have no reason for pride or self-assurance. God has done everything. That's what he's saying. God has done this. This is why we can have confidence. God has created. God has disciplined. God has had grace. God has given his son Jesus on the cross for our sin. God has raised Jesus from the grave. And he's declared us righteous and justified, adopted us as his children, and promised us resurrection and eternal life. This is what God has done. To that we say amen. Right? Here's the point. Keeping the law, right, as Paul is operating in it, produced an achieved righteousness. Something I've earned. Paul's saying trust in Christ, having faith in Christ, brought an imputed righteousness. Paul's hope was the righteousness that God gave. Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. See, that word imputed is very, very important. Because in the moment of salvation, this is a moment. 
of salvation. Justification happens in a moment. It's a forensic word. The gavel's gone down. You've been declared righteous, right? It's this moment where we impute, we give to God all our guilt, all our shame, all the things that, that are ugliness, right? All our sin goes to Christ. And at that moment, Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us. So when God the Father looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. We are forgiven. Someone has stepped in my place, and we are justified at this moment. This is what Paul is saying. I don't want my own righteousness. I tried it. It doesn't work. I want God's. It works. It becomes very important. Paul goes on. He doesn't leave it there. So that's a past, a moment in our lives. Is this moment of justification, the moment of salvation. And he goes on in verse 10, what I'm calling sanctification. This is the present moment. You and I, if we're believers this morning, this is what is happening in us. He says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed. To his death, they complement each other. The power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Here's a theological foundation for Paul's thought, as well as a model for Christian growth. Christians must be like their Lord. So the point is, Paul's deep desire is to know Christ in a life-shaping way. Paul has told us to do this in the very, this very book. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The resurrection power of Jesus is in you. God is at work in you. God is developing you. Continue to work out your sanctification. Continue to seek him and know him. Because we are justified, we move forward in sanctification. Paul moves on from there in the last verse, verse 11, to glorification. He says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. The power displayed through Christ's resurrection is also available through Christ. It's a divine power. And all of God's attributes appear in Jesus. So the point is this passage makes clear that theology and life go together. And that the, the antidote to poor living is proper theology. Theology just means an understanding of God. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to men on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the hope. And Paul spells out for us some wonderful theological depth. In three verses, we are justified by faith. We pursue and become conformed to Christ and his death. What was Christ like in his death? Paul says in chapter 2, he was obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And he says there is a hope, a future. The glorification is looking to the future. There's a moment where God will give us a crown that we might throw it at the feet of our Savior. So this morning I would ask you, have you made the correction? If you're trusting in anything but Christ alone, today must be the day where you make the correction. Are you trusting in any goodness that you think might make you acceptable to God. 
If that is you this morning, let me warn you that your goodness will lead you to hell. That's the harsh reality. Because goodness doesn't earn. Goodness can't make us perfect. God demands perfection. There was one who was perfect. He went to the cross. Died for us. And we have that moment of justification. We trust this righteousness to come to us. And I place my life, my hope, all that I am, and I believe on Jesus and him alone. There comes the confidence, the moment of justification, and then I get to move out and grow and develop in my sanctification. I trust in the future that God holds my life, that he will continue to be at work in me, whether he calls me home or he comes and gets us, he's at work. I think it was D.L. Moody who once said, the thief had nails through both hands, so that he could not work. And he had a nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot towards his salvation, yet Christ offered him the greatest gift of all. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. This morning, if you're here, and, and this has maybe been a part of your life, maybe you've been in this moment of trying to earn or deserve or think you're born right, or born in the right nation, or have the right formula of some, some kind, I'd like to pray for you. Today needs to be a day of correction. You know, each day is a gift of God. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We've lived life long enough and we've experienced the brokenness of life in this world. We realize many things can happen in a day. If you're this morning and your trust isn't completely resolved in Christ alone, today needs to be the day of a correction. You place your hope, your life, because it is a righteousness from God, apart from the law, that has been fulfilled.